What is the perfect story? Does it exist? Is there a tangible formula? Has the perfect story ever been told? And if so, are we simply trying to retell the story over and over? This podcast is called The Midnight Myth, and somewhere between the black of night and the break of dawn, there is a story, and it's perfect. My name is Derek Jones. And my name is Laurel Hostack. Welcome to The Midnight Myth. kind of feel sometimes like society is falling apart and I am here witnessing the demise of our Republic. Huh? Yeah. I sometimes feel that way. And I've been in, in a era of sort of trying to gain some wisdom. I've been revisiting late Republican Roman history, like right before Julius Caesar kind of came to power Nice. And uh, I've been listening to a podcast and I've been reading some of my old textbooks. I got another textbook I've been cross-referencing, yada, yada, yada. Long story short, you can kind of trace the demise of the Republic of Rome sort of to one kind of central event. And it was this dude named Tiberius Gracchus. Um, the name Gracchus, if you've seen the movie Gladiator, might be familiar because there's Senator Gracchus, who's kind of based off of this Tiberia Gracchus, different Gracchus, though. And he arose to a pretty prominent position in the Roman um, political elites, and uh, he formed what's called the Populares, a political party, which we get the modern day, the word popular from. as as well as the word populism from. And he decided that he was going to make land reform his central issue. Put some context to it. Um, The the Tiberius Gracchus, he lived about 100 years before Julius Caesar. And um, he decided land reform was going to be his central issue. But here's the kicker, right? He didn't really give a shit about land reform. He gave a shit about his power, And he realized if he made land reform his issue, he could sidestep the other elites. And he did two things that sort of upended the Roman Constitution. Thing number one, in the Roman Constitution, not to get into the weeds, but you're in a position of prominence or authority. There's always two of you. So there are two consuls, for example, which is sort of like the head of state, the head of military, two tribune of the plebs. And that's someone that has a, a degree of speaking for the people and a high degree of legislative control. Well, the tribune of the pleb by custom is not allowed to be touched. The reason for that is you don't want the will of the people ever to be touched. So you serve for a year. Well, he did one thing. His fellow tribune of the plebs, he was one of them, um, didn't really agree with him. It was vetoing his propositions. So he raised a mob of his followers and physically removed him from what's called the People's Assembly. 
Oh, that's not cool. Yeah, upending a norm that had lasted for about 500 years. Yeah. Right? And uh, then he did another thing. So in between, if you held an office, they were for one year. Um, at the end of that, you couldn't run for the same office unless 10 years have gone by. It's a way to prevent someone from holding the same office in perpetuity. Right. Well, he did something else. He said, you know what? I'm going to run for Tribune of the Plebs for a second year and won. These two acts um, really are the start of the end of the Republic. It was the start of, I can do it, so I will do it. You can't stop me from doing it. And uh, look at me, it's done. Wow. And, and I often feel, you know, like revisiting the Gracchi, because when I first learned about the Gracchi, I say the Gracchi because there's two Gracchus brothers. Uh, there is Tiberius Gracchus and his younger brother, and they're called the Gracchi. They were both uh, the leaders of the populari, um, the Roman populism, if you will. Remember when I first read about them thinking like, oh man, those guys had it going on, land reform. They wanted to do it. They were like, fuck the man. Those, these guys are punk rock. I look back now and I say, yeah, they pandered to the mob to promote their own interest. And the long-term, the 360-degree view of their actions meant that other people, the next generations, took it a little step further and took it a little step further wow. until you have the end of any semblance of democracy as you know it in Rome. And it made me think we're always kind of at the edge of our dystopia, aren't we? Wow. We're always yeah. at that precipice and seeing uh, where we're at now and seeing someone like Mitch McConnell, who is the Republican Senate leader, Mitch McConnell say, I don't give a fuck if it's actually supposed to be that I vote for a Supreme Court justice. I'm just not going to do it. And guess what? I'm not going to do it because you can't stop me. And watching that type of political uh, maneuvering happening, always under the guise of it's for the people, populism versus I'm doing it because I can, is a, is a dangerous soup, so to speak, or ingesting that leads to tyranny. And um, it made me think of societies are kind of always on the edge. And what, what, well, I'm, I'm speaking specifically of history, but what in storytelling can we learn? Yeah, it's really interesting how you talk about the beginning of the end with the Gracchi and with the Populare. Uh, and where I think you can definitely trace that as being a really significant moment in that historical movement forward and away from the legacy of republicanism, the legacy of, uh, you know, a version of democracy, right? you also have to count in the fact that land reform hit hard with those people because there was unrest brewing. So it's, it's often very difficult to pinpoint the true beginning of the end or the true climactic event that really sets things over the edge. If we look at our current state, you know, what can we say is the moment of truth? Is well, it when this one coal miner lost his job or, or what? Here's the important thing, right? They never got the land, the plebs. Of course. They never got the land. But by preying off of that, an entire political movement was able to be born and was able to break through the rules of the previous generations. And I think this is a really interesting way to parlay it into what we're going to talk about tonight. 
Um, we wanted to talk about a, a trope in storytelling, not necessarily a trope, but a genre, actually, and that's dystopia. That's speculative fiction and primarily dystopia. Uh, and if you're not familiar, I'm sure you have read or seen or uh, in some way taken in a dystopian story, maybe without knowing it, to take it back to where that stems from. Uh, we go back to Sir Thomas More and his book Utopia, which is the first time that word was introduced by Sir Thomas More. Uh, the etymology of utopia is interesting because it actually breaks down to the Greek uh, like words for no place, you meaning nothing or nowhere, and topia meaning place. So it really means no place. By nature, it is unattainable. But Sir Thomas More turned this phrase into a synonym for paradise. So throughout literature and history and religion, we get the Garden of Eden, we get paradises all over, uh, you know, mythology, you get uh, Arcadia is a version of utopia, a place where everything is perfect and all things are good and pure. And now a huge genre in speculative fiction, in science fiction, is that of the dystopia, which by contrast to utopia stands for an imagined place or state in which everything is unpleasant or bad, typically a totalitarian or environmentally degraded one. I'm reading that from uh, dictionary.com on dystopia. But what's interesting is how those two are so inextricably linked. When we think of dystopia, we think of anti-utopia, right? We think it's something that was meant to be utopia and couldn't be. A solution to a big problem to make your place perfect and make everything good, but everything fell apart, didn't it? Yeah, and I think we can understand the context of dystopia storytelling. I would surmise, and if anyone out there has a counter-argument, I'd be willing to hear it, but that's a purely modern phenomenon in that we tried to find ancient dystopias, ancient dystopian stories, or even other Western dystopian stories, and we were just we struggled to find uh, stories that had to deal with the de demise, the anti-happy society, the right. unhappy society as a story device, as something that is purely in the West and purely in the more modern era. Yeah, and the first, really, the first um, dystopian stories that we get are actually like 18th century, if we look at Gulliver's Travels, you can call dystopia, Wikipedia and, does. And that would be modern. Right, yeah, so that's the first time we get it. We get a lot of them in the 19th and 20th century, and we see them uh, primarily in like Anglicized or Eurocentric cultures. There are a few that you'll see in Slavic cultures and Eastern European. Karl Chopek, who I've talked about on the podcast before, the Czech writer, uh, his books uh, War with the Newts and his play uh, Rosam's Universal Robots is a dystopia of some kind. You see a lot of Polish writers writing about it, but it's very rare that you'll get a dystopia from like a Middle Eastern country or a developing nation, which I think is a really interesting thing that we'll get into tonight. I have a theory for that. Do you? So, and it's totally untested. So I won't even say I have a theory. I have a hypothesis. Okay. My hypothesis is thus. I have a hunch. That dystopia came out of modernity in the West. Mm. Modernity being a period in which Western European civilization had 
colonial dominance over most of planet Earth. It reverberates through to today, in particular in American storytelling culture, where American storytelling culture has had a relative hegemonic, what I mean by that, untested dominance um, out there in the world. And for American storytelling, Western storytelling, from the basis of understanding historically that a society at its epoch, at its most hegemonic and powerful state, only has one place to go, which is down. Right. Right. So understanding that all empires wax and wane and seeing, you know, our current, you know, hegemonic state under threat and duress leaves storytellers this vacuum to say, what does it look like when our societies upend and fail? Hence, we get the dystopia as a genre. It's the same thing that is propelling writers to make all of those 1999 movies, Matrix, uh, American Beauty, Fight Club, that that whole style of movie that undercuts and undermines the Pax Americana ethos. Right, but um, those aren't dystopias. Right, but it's they're the like, same fuck drive. the utopia. It's the same the drive, utopia right? is itself wrong, right? Yeah. They're like, stop selling us this utopian vision. Right. Well, now we're at the point of like, well, hey, when everything fails, what are Americans going to look like? What are Westerners right. going to look like when this fails? Yeah. Almost saying that it's going to fail. And at the heart of dystopia, at the heart of the speculative fiction genre is the what if. So what's the dystopia that's on everybody's minds right now? I'm going to say it's Margaret Atwood's The Handmaid's Tale. Fresh off of a uh, a release on Hulu. If you didn't get a chance to watch it, I definitely recommend signing up for that 30-day trial. They're not a sponsor of this podcast or anything, but get on Hulu, go watch The Handmaid's Tale. Um, but or, I'll say this: Don't go down the Handmaid Tale lightly. That is a oh, sure. very serious show. But more importantly, if you've got a library card or if you have an Audible membership, get your hands on a copy of the book. Uh, Margaret Atwood's *The Handmaid's Tale* is a very, very landmark dystopian novel, uh, and it was, I think, adapted into a really beautiful uh, and really accurate and powerful and meaningful adaptation on Hulu. So I would definitely recommend partaking in both of those. We are going to spoil a couple of things tonight talking about it. Um, but I would just encourage you to get on that immediately if you haven't. Uh, but so- there's lots of other evidence of dystopia. Uh, Mad Max Fury Road was a huge, huge hit movie. Still not sure why, you know, after seeing it once or twice, not yeah. sure why everyone loved it, but that was it. That's a dystopia well, and then there's classics like 1984, 1984. like Brave New World. Um, we listed a few others that I'm blanking on. For oh, oh no, The Walking Dead, the zombie genre in and of itself is a genre of dystopia as well. That's interesting that you would call it that. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I mean, I mean whole, yeah, it fits whole, absolutely fits the bill. It's a but dystopian. it feels like a such a different uh, genre, but it absolutely does fit the same parameters, even though it has like that horror thriller version. Well, I think the reason the zombie genre has its hooks in us is that it satisfies that what happens to our society when it fails. Plus it gives us the fun of, you know, zombies to slaughter. Woohoo! So it, it gives us a both really, really fun yeah. and really compelling look at human nature all at the same time. Yeah, but even like young adult fiction, like the Hunger Games and like the Divergent series and Maze Runner, like 
it's huge with young people too, is like giving them that what if is, is so compelling to so many people. The idea of what would happen if our society were to devolve or to evolve into something that looks better, like is packaged in a way that on some surface level might look like it's better to some people, but still marginalizes uh, so many other populations. But to dive in, just as Let's a case study it. with The Handmaid's Tale, I want to go back to that question of what if. Because The Handmaid's Tale could, in in some, some ways, like you might find it on the shelf of science fiction. But I do want to draw a little bit of a line and call it speculative fiction because at the heart of it is that question. What would happen if dot, dot, dot. And the world that Margaret Atwood, the writer, is responding to, she wrote this book in 1985, and this is at a time when, you know, first wave feminism has made some huge advancements in American culture and Western culture, for sure. Women are integrated into the workplace. Obviously, we got the vote, you know, several decades before, but women are finally starting to get in on an equal footing in society, and it's no longer acceptable to view women uh, you know, in a mainstream way as inferior to men. It's becoming more and more taboo to call a woman a product of the kitchen, someone who needs to stay at home and take care of the kids. You know, it's becoming more and more acceptable for women to be out, fending for themselves, getting it done, having it all, right? So you got the Betty for Dan's and the, the so-ons doing that first wave feminism, really starting to get those major wins for women's rights. Now, in 1985, we're at the height of the Reagan era, right? When does Reagan take office? Let me consult my good friend Google. Reagan is in the office in the 80s, but we get Nancy Reagan, who is a big proponent of, of course, like traditional family roles, right? Uh, traditional roles for gender, for women and men being in their separate spheres, right? So we see kind of a return to, to, to traditional values, really taking over the family unit. Uh, and we see a newer generation being a little bit lax about the wins that first wave feminism had scored. Uh, Reagan was in office from 1981 to 1989. That's what I thought. Yeah. So thank you, you Google. You definitely see this, uh, this sort of rollback of that passion, this rollback of that uh, drive to fight to keep the wins that women really clocked during that real um, wave of feminist protest and action and uh, work that was put in. So Margaret Atwood, responding to this, writes The Handmaid's Tale, which asks the question, what if we stopped fighting for what generations before secured for us? What if women of the new generation, of the next generation and the next just let it happen and let men and let, uh, you know, bureaucracy and autocracy and powerful people roll back those victories. And that's how we get to Gilead. You know, we get uh, a coup on the, on the part of, you know, these aggressively family values oriented rebels who are willing to completely overhaul the existing government to put people into their uh, their gender roles again and you know make women handmaids make women into concubines who bear children for an infertile society and you get this cocktail of course of you know there's 
there is so much chemical in the water supply or there's such a uh, an environmental catastrophe that is causing women to become infertile uh, and then you have this underground movement of people who are trying to return uh, the traditional family unit to the roles that were established so long ago that becomes again this toxic soup that leads to a really horrible authoritarian broken down society where human rights are completely destroyed. Yeah. Anything to add? Um, yeah. I mean, so much there. So what is, yeah, you know, I think the thing that I find interesting about the handmaid's tale, um, and I will put myself on blast. I started the book, but I haven't, finished it, but I have watched the entire show. Yeah. You're busy. So yeah. Speaking just on the show. I mean, I'm busy. I have a lot of Roman history to read. Yeah, Duh. absolutely. Uh, I mean, yeah. So, um, what struck me about the show was the plausibility. It wasn't like you mentioned, like some would call it science fiction. I wouldn't either. I totally right, agree yeah. with you. Handmaid's tale outlines a society where America has fallen. It's internal crises of, infertility, pollution, social unrest have bred this environment in which a religious theocracy could seize control of the government, right. rewrite the constitution, upend the entire constitution, yeah. suspend it and slaughter Congress and create a new constitution in which there's this religious order. And in that order, women are slaves they're Based not, on scriptural precedent, yeah. too. Like, and they if, found precedent in the Bible for this. Yeah, if you're fertile, if you're a fertile woman, you get to go to a commander's house and bear his babies. Right, by That's, way of the ceremony, which, of course, is a it's just totally... sexual slavery. Yeah. It's, you're a slave. Yeah. Uh, all women are slaves, you know, and they... Yeah, even the wives and the Marthas there's and the no, aunts. There's no, there's no woman that has power. Um, you know, which is nothing, nothing new people using, um, dogmas and exploiting them for their own power. Mm -hmm. But what struck me was the plausibility, the fact that it was easy to walk into this world. I wasn't in the matrix, which requires a huge suspension of disbelief. Right. Right. I was in a world that I could see envisioned in a world, in a reality where I'm like, Hmm, this is a dystopia that I am very willing to believe. Right. And it helps that it's near future, that you have a primary character narrating this story who remembers what she calls the time before, which is our time. And she is constantly reminiscing back to a couple years ago when things were as we know them now. And that's a really scary thing for a character in a dystopia for us to identify with the idea that this is only a few steps away. And I think it's also important to note too, that while the handmaid's tale seems so alien because it takes place in modern day Boston, that there are plenty of societies out there where this is the reality. Right. And this is something that's really interesting to me about dystopia. Uh, and how we talked about how so many of the, the, the dystopian stories that we found uh, really 
are originated by Eurocentric or Anglicized or American, Western of some kind, modernized, developed nations. The, the writers coming from developed nations are writing these stories, uh, and they're not coming out of the the societies where you know sexual slavery and human trafficking are are rampant. They're not coming from societies where The Handmaid's Tale is a daily thing that, that women live through. And that's a, that's a scary thing, too. It, it makes me wonder about the effect of dystopia on us, the reader. Is it something that, and I'm, I'm coming from, you know, I, I love The Handmaid's Tale. I love dystopia. I love 1984. I love reading that stuff. It's entertaining. It's, so it's compelling. It's a weird, like, I love dystopia. It's right. a weird statement. But it's a genre that I really identify with uh, and I really enjoy reading and I feel like I learn a lot and it's it's really compelling to me. And I wonder if it makes me so introspective about my own situation and how close I could be to falling into that in my own society, how close my own country could come to that, that it numbs me or, you know, kind of desensitizes me to what's happening in other parts of the world. It's something that I wonder about the effect on others. Well, dystopia is state of nature theory in reverse, right? So if you're not familiar with state of nature there was a movement in the Enlightenment, the beginning of modernity, that theorized uh, what is, uh, what would human society look like absent of laws and would call it the state of nature. So you might have heard of like Hobbes, uh, Rousseau, John Locke, these theorists that said, we're going to base our political philosophy off of an idea of what is the state of nature. And so Handmaid's tells us a very bleak um, prognos- prognostication, pardon me, of human nature, mm-hmm. that if you broke down the societal structures, a small oligarchy would emerge and it would, and it, it would impose a full totalitarian rule and anyone that was deemed weaker would get washed away in this. In particular, they target their um, sort of totalitarian authoritarian regime against women, that women then become the social unit by which that they can exploit. And in it, I mean, other people get exploited too, but the main basis of their society is a society that's supposed to propagate breeding. How do they do that? They control women. And that in that way, we're seeing a sort of a state, state of nature in the reverse. We're yeah. not seeing the beginning of society, but the end of society and, and its most brute form and way what are men? Well, men are selfish and men are cruel and men will look for themselves and fight for themselves. Based upon that, they'll form a society that shuts out women. When I say men, I don't mean the race of man. I mean the gender man. And it, it has this very grim prognostication there. Well, and when you say like state of nature too, like like nature without the law of man, what is the law of nature? It's survival of your species, right? It's, you know, survival of the fittest. It's well, that's evolutionary what, That's theory. what Hobbes would argue. Right. And so you do see uh, this entire regime change, this whole theocracy bolstered and justified by the need to perpetuate the survival of the species, which is threatened by 
environmental catastrophe. It's threatened by mass infertility, and it's threatened by, in the eyes of this theocracy, in the eyes of the rebels who start the Gileadian Empire, it's threatened by gender traitors, uh, which is what they call LGBTQ plus folks, anybody who you know does not procreate because they are interested in uh, a sex that is not traditional. Um, that's that's uh, you know people who are infertile. Uh, there's a whole like scapegoating of the other in this narrative as well because it threatens the perpetuation of the species. I don't know. I thought I think that's a really interesting. Uh, Absolutely. Tie in there. Yeah, absolutely. And I think most dystopian stories in the pop culture sense, um, Handmaid's Tale being part of them, always presuppose that when it comes down to it, uh, Hobbes said that life in the state of nature was cold, brutal, and short. I paraphrase. That might not be right. Right. And it always presupposes the ugliness of human nature. Um, And we're always staring this down in these stories of what happens when the meanest of us um, both intellectually, culturally, and spiritually gain control of society. What yeah. happens when the the people that have the least uh, claim to authority by virtue gain authority? And where do we live when we've uphanded, up, uphanded the social order? It's kind of a Joker-esque thought experiment, too. You know, the world without laws. Like... What would well, man do? Gilead's not a world without laws. Right. Most dystopias are not. They're laws... They have they have new laws, of course, but those those are usually uh, mean laws. The, but what does mankind do given the opportunity to write his own rules? Well, we always have. Yeah, every rule mankind's always written, right? Like, I don't think that's any different. You know, in any society or theoretical society, sure. The, the purpose is what you are. What are you saying about the nature of man? Yeah. And if you don't have a structural reason to be good, in The Handmaid's Tale, so like. I don't have a structural reason. Uh, I don't have, like you mentioned, first wave feminism. I don't have first wave feminism telling me I can't suppress women's rights. Once that's gone and I have the M16, I can suppress your rights. Well, then I'm going to. Yeah. And there's a, oh, sorry, go ahead. Go ahead. Well, there's a line uh, in one of the episodes of A Handmaid's Tale, and it's a, it's a, an aphorism I've heard before. You know, you think of like a, a frog being cooked in a, a pot of boiling water, but in a steadily heating bathtub, you'd never notice that you boil to death or you boil to death before you even notice. Uh, I'm sort of butchering that phrase, but you the got idea there. is that, you know, even if you are sitting in the frying pan and they're upping the temperature on you one degree at a time, the jump from, you know, two degrees to a hundred degrees or whatever the equivalent of that might be wouldn't be as noticeable as if they turned it all up at once. So it brings me back to what you were saying before about the Gracchi and the Populari and the uh, beginning of the end for the Roman uh, Republic. It makes me think, you know, that any rights can be taken away if you slowly introduce that. Any regime can change drastically if it happens slowly enough or without uh without warning as long as you keep the masses satisfied you can kind of pull the rug out from under them right well what we get in the handmaid's tale which i think separates it from a lot of other dystopian stories 
is that we get the how and the why. Mm -hmm. And a lot of dystopian stories, you're just there. Think of like the Mad Max series. You're just there. You're left to ponder how it got there. But now that you're there, you're there. Um, Even in Walking Dead, the main character, Rick Grimes, wakes up and it's there. You know, and it's up to him to kind of figure out how he got there. But it doesn't really matter. It's there. In so many dystopian stories, there's been this external thing that's happened that caused it. In um, Do Androids Dream of Electric Sheep? It's nuclear war. In Fahrenheit 451, we're just kind of in this totalitarian society. The thing that makes The Handmaid's Tale uh, interesting and compelling is it shows, at least in the in the TV show, the gradual moves that happened, the step-by-step. It starts with, you know, mass infertility. Then it happens that there's a conservative movement trying to rewrite the laws. Then they gain uh, control of the Congress. Then they declare martial law. Then they consolidate every woman's bank account. Right. They right. make it so women can't hold property and all of their assets are surrendered to their husbands. And by the time it gets there, it's too fucking late. It's already done. Your money's gone. Yeah. You know, like you can't do anything. And then suddenly you can't hold a job. And now you're in your handmade training class. Yeah. It's it's pretty wild that you get you get the entire timeline. You can see of Fred's memories of the time before when she was just a girl who could you know, go out for coffee with her friends or could, you know, spend time with her husband uh, and have, you know, quality time with her child. And this is the same in the book, too. We get her recollections of this. And there's something that uh, Aunt Lydia or Aunt Elizabeth says at the Red Center in the book about how they're a transitional generation. Things will be better for the women who come after you because they won't have the attitudes that you have. They won't fight back because they won't have known anything else. So things will be better for them. And that makes me think of, you know, Rick Grimes waking up into you know, the dead walk. Or, you know, in 1984, the character is just waking up and, yep, the government watches your every move. That's just how it is. That's how it's always been or that's how it's been for a long time. Because if you don't have that memory of what it was like before, how do you know that this is hell? How do you know that you're living in a, a world without rights without freedom. And I think the one thing that I can say that I can gleam from the perspective of someone that history is an important philosophical social science. Um, the dark ages come slowly. They don't just happen, right? It takes time for things to go from a golden age to a dark age. Right. And it takes time from the dark age to go to the golden age. And I don't want to suggest a cyclical pattern that we are all captured in, um, you know, because I don't know that, but I can say that it's been a long time since the West has been in a true dark age. And uh, the dystopian stories show us what authors imagine that dark age would look like. And the question is, uh, what are they saying about human nature? And do we buy into this? If, American society was to collapse tomorrow, would we be Gilead? Right. You know, like, and I think that's the thing that that show asks us. That's the thing that uh, if the zombies, you know, come up and we're in zombie apocalypse, 
Um, are we going to be like Rick Grimes, rugged individualist, slaughtering everything in our path, right. regardless of morality or mercy? Um, or can we uh, establish a new order in this? And I think that is the the fundamental question at the heart of social science, which is what makes the dystopia interesting because it takes, because the state of nature and the state of nature, state of nature theorists, there was no actual state of nature. It was always a thought experiment. Right. Yeah. What would the state of nature look like? You know, Locke argued that we would be good. Hobbes argued that we would be savages. The dystopia always argues that we're savages. Right. It's always showing us our savage nature because um, otherwise it wouldn't be a dystopia. It'd be a utopia. But um, looking at that, I think where we're at now, we're at a moment that we should pause and we, we should say, yeah, our democratic norms are kind of slipping away and have been for some time. It's easy to lay that all on the feet of, you know, the orange-faced Cheeto that runs the federal government right, right. now. That's easy, but it's been sure. happening for a while. It doesn't just go on him. In other words, that's the symptom, not the cause. Right, and the fact that he rode the wave into a position of power, like the Gracchi rode the wave of you know, land reform into a position of power, you know, that doesn't mean he's the, uh, he's the bearer of civil unrest. Yeah, that means so... He- the question to mid- cash in on it. Midnight Myth listeners, when uh, our republic, if our republic gets upended, what world are we going to forge next? That's the question. Whew. I want to say one more thing about Handmaid's Tale before we wrap up tonight. Uh, Do it. And that's, I, I want to talk about the epilogue in the book. And if you have been listening and you've watched the show but haven't read the book, you might want to save this. It's not, it's not much of a spoiler, but... It is probably my favorite part of the book. Um, and so you might want to hold on if you haven't haven't read it yet and go back and read that first. But in the epilogue of the story, after we see the last moments of, of Fred's narrative where she is led out into the black van, into darkness or else into light, we don't know what happens to her. But then we get a section called Historical Notes on The Handmaid's Tale, And this is a section where a professor gives a lecture at a conference of Gileadian studies. And so this is way further, I think about 150 years into the future. We've jumped forward in time to a point where we have entire conferences of scholars of Gilead and people who study what happened in that brief time in the history of the world. Can I ask a question just to follow up? I'm sorry to interrupt. Yeah. Do they give an actual date in the future in the epilogue? Uh, they might. I think it's like, I think literally they say that it's 150 years later. So I, I think if the original story takes place uh, in the like late 80s, 90s, then it- we're... The reason I ask is that you said in the brief time that Gilead was there, like right. you get a sense that Gilead had like a... It fell. It fell really quickly after it, it yeah. was formed. I'd have to get some... I'd have to go in with like my magnifying glass and see if there are actual dates, but I think it's still pretty vague in the lecture. Um, but we get uh, a little bit of a, a lecture about 
kind of what the Handmaid's Tale means for the study of Gilead. And so it takes some time to talk about verifying the veracity of the Handmaid's Tale as a narrative, which it turns out was all an oral account um, that was recorded on tapes after Ofred was smuggled wherever she was smuggled. So we don't get much of an idea of where she went, but we know that she had a chance to record these tapes from her recollections. What strikes me about the epilogue as they kind of break apart and sort of try and dissect what was really going on in this society by looking through the lens of Ofred is that there's a bit of a fetishization that comes with all of it. You get these these scholars who are so far removed from the situation that they can laugh, they can make jokes about what happened to these women. Uh, There's an entire conference where there are activities where you can go out and recreate some of the traditions of Gileadian society. Uh, The professor who's giving the lecture even exhibits, you know, a couple of moments of slight misogyny, slight, you know, disbelief of, of Fred's actual account. And it's really unsettling when you look close at what happens when you kind of remove the context from the narrative and remove your understanding of these as actual people. And it reminds me a little bit of how I felt when I started to think about, yeah, I read this book and it makes me think so much about America and where America is going, but what am I doing to stop human trafficking elsewhere in the world? What am I doing to pay attention to that story where it's, where it's a reality? And so it's, it's a wake-up call, I think, to say if you're reading dystopia, if you're, if you are compelled and you are, you're taking the time to protest changes in your own government, it's time to think about what's happening in others. Interesting thought. It's, it, it kind of reminds me in a weird twist and turn of an Eddie Izzard joke that he did from Dress to Kill, a stand-up thing. Great special. Where he goes like, you know, you kill two people, you're a murderer. Everyone hates you. You kill 10 people, you're a serial killer, mass murderer. You kill 100,000 people. It's almost like, well done. Yeah. <laughs> you must get up very early in the morning. Like we can't really process that once it gets to a certain level, you're like, wow, a hundred thousand people. I'm kind of impressed that you could kill that many. Right. It's almost like looking back and you say, oh, wow. So, you know, how many African-Americans or how many Africans died in transit in a transatlantic slave trade from, you know, Africa, sub-Saharan Africa to the Caribbean and the North Americans? How many millions? Well, that doesn't even really feel like anyone died. Like you end up getting to a point. Right. Where it becomes just a number and it's hard to, hard to identify. It's hard to see the face. It's hard to understand the human impact. Well, the thing is, is the pain does get numb. Yeah. When it's just like, oh, millions, millions died. Oh, okay. I don't know how to feel about that. Whereas one story one particular story of one individual can move you to tears. Right. The idea of it happening to this mass number somehow has this numbing effect in which then like your like little prejudices can be exposed as in this epilogue. It sounds like the sort of prejudice of this professor was exposed by how deaf he was to the actual suffering. I guess in, in a certain way that says the, 
the actual underbelly, the actual nature in the, the, the state of nature is that this professor is not too far away from Gilead, isn't he? Right, and it talks to the spirit of, of the conference, too, which feels indicative of, of a greater society. It talks to the ignorance of history. If you continue to make the same you know, sexist or misogynistic remarks long after you've condemned the practices of Gilead, have you really moved forward? Or are you ignoring the mistakes of the past that led to the beginning of the end? Yeah. Anytime the powerful scapegoat the weak in order to propagate their own power, anytime that they exploit them, um, it's always this, it's, and it's always that. Whether it's in mm-hmm. the guise of sexism, racism, colonialism, whatever ism or ist that academics want to call it, it comes down to the I'm going to do it because I have the power to do it and you can't stop me from doing it and I benefit from it. And, oh, do you have a problem with that? I have a soldier that's going to kick you in the fucking teeth. Woof. I think you're right. Should we play a game? Game. All right. So, guys, you know the drill. Every week here on the Midnight Myth Podcast, we like to play a little game because we tend to get kind of real with the stories that we're dealing with. So we want to have a little fun. Uh, we love for you to play along at home. Uh, send us your responses. You can either tweet us at the Midnight Myth on Twitter, uh, or you can hit us up on the website, www.midnightmyth.com, or find us on Facebook. Just search the Midnight Myth Podcast. We would love to hear from you. Uh, without further ado, since I'm still figuring out what my answer is, Derek, will you serve us the game? Yeah, uh, another really kind of last week's game was a little fucked up and dark. This one's going to be fucked up and dark because we've had some pretty fucked up and dark topics lately. Um, Sorry about that. We're going to do something happy soon, I think. Yeah, sure. Yeah. um, So the game is you are in a dystopia. What dystopia are you in? To give you, you know, some context, you can be in Mad Max Fury Road. You can be in like, racing cars in a society where gas is the most precious resource. So everyone squanders it when they can, not that that plot makes any sense. And honestly, Mad Max Fury Road was a terrible movie, but anyway, I whispered. Um, but for example, that could be your dystopia. So what dystopia you could be in the hunger games, if you want to be in the hunger games, but you're in this dystopia for real people, you've got to fight and survive you're going to be oppressed. You're going to be, you know, lacking food and resources. This game is a major fucking bummer. And I just so I clarify, I think it's like, which one do you think you have the best chance based on your skills and experience to survive, right? Sure. Okay. Why not? Cool. Yeah, I didn't think that far, but that makes a lot of sense. Yeah. So which one, Laurel? Am I going first? Yeah, of course. All right. So I pulled one off of this list that I was just looking at that I never would have thought of as a dystopia. But once I put it in my head, I was like, damn, that's my answer. Uh, We're going with a little book called The Lorax by Dr. Seuss. Silence. I don't know. Have you read it? Yeah, that's a dystopia. Yeah, it is. Yeah, it's a place where everything is bad and society has fallen apart because of capitalism and anti-environmentalism and, uh, you know, just 
cutting down all the truffula trees to make money. I don't think I know the Lorax well enough to comment. Yeah, <laughs> I realize I don't know it at the all. The Onceler tells this story to the little kid and is like, this once was a really beautiful place with these truffula trees that had this amazing little like fur and whatever. And the Lorax lived inside them. And if you cut it down, you could you know, sell the fur to make coats and make a whole bunch of money. But then the Lorax would come out and be like, hey, you're cutting down my trees. That's really bad for the earth. I guess uh, I, I don't think I have read that story, but anyway, that's a dystopia, huh? It's great, yeah. But I think I could be really useful in the world of the Lorax because if the Onceler told me his story, I'm a big proponent of, you know, supporting and, and caring for and uh, tending to our environment and working really hard to save our earth. So if the Onceler told me his story, I would be moved. I would take that truffula seed that he gives us in the end and I would propagate and I would learn how to like grow and tend my own truffula tree and then spread it all over the world. I would, I would take that knowledge and like become like a serious botanist horticulturist and like save the world through truffula trees. I have no idea what you're talking about. My readers, my listeners do dear listeners. You understand. Well done. That's your dystopia. Yeah. What about yours? Zombie apocalypse. Really? Oh yeah. Okay. Yeah, I don't have any other uh, a zombie apocalypse. That's it. <laughs> Why? Why? Because if I have to deal with like the world ending and everything sucking, in zombie apocalypse, I have a chance to like kind of make my own way. And I think there's one fundamental thing in the zombie apocalypse narrative that I think I could do well that most characters don't do well, and that's walls. Oh yeah, walls are good. Walls and trenches. Walls and trenches. Plus, you like have a machete. Yeah, I have a lot of good zombie you weapons. You have a samurai sword. I, I, I also have a bayonet. You have a bayonet. I have a billy club. I'm pretty good. Yeah, I'm sticking with you. I'm pretty good with a, a handgun. Um, yeah, I've got pretty decent aim. Um, so, you know, I feel like I would do well from a weapon standpoint, but I also think I'd do well from an organizational standpoint. Nice. Because I'd realize that I can't survive on my own. I would need a plot of land with trenches, so a layer of trenches, uh-huh then a layer of fences, then a wall, so that when the zombies come, they have to go through a trench, a fence, and a wall. And most of them are going to give up before they get that far. Well, they're going to get stuck. In, they're going to get stuck in the trenches or the fences, Yeah, and then you can just pop them off um, from the walls. And I feel like every time I watch a zombie apocalypse narrative, and I'm like, you just need some good farming land and some fucking trenches, fences and walls, a three pronged defense system. It's not that hard people. That's how you stop barbarians. We should write a letter. And what are zombies? If not the, the reincarnation of the barbarian hoarder that just is trying to go and raid all your resources. <laughs> it's right. So true. So that's what the zombies represent. Yeah. The barbarian influence upon the civilization. Well, they've always been stopped. The organized society always beats back the barbarians. So I feel like my knowledge of like, for example, Roman history would come into handy there. Mm-hmm. Great answer. Yeah. That's my, that's my answer. And, uh, until next time. Be, be kind. kind.